in anticipation of Christmas, we are spending our time uh, in the sermon portion of our worship services uh, over the next few weeks, uh, reflecting on a passage out of Isaiah, Isaiah 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. Um, It's one of what are called the the suffering servant songs in Isaiah. And here Isaiah was anticipating uh, and he was prophesying about this servant whom God was going to send, who was going to deliver his people. And, And it's one of the clearest places, not just in the Old Testament, but really all in all the Bible that explains to us why Jesus came, why he took on flesh, why he suffered and why he died. And as a song, the suffering servant song, as a song, this uh, this passage, these verses, they break out into five clear and distinct stanzas um, that tell us about this promised suffering servant. And so last week we started this and we looked at the first stanza, we talked about Christmas and the puzzling servant. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3, and the title got left out of your bulletin, but this morning we're really looking to see Christmas and the upside down servant. Uh, so if you want to follow along in your bulletin or your Bible, I'm going to read for us this passage, and then we will uh, pray, and then we'll talk about this upside-down servant that Isaiah tells us about in Isaiah 53. So let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help as we look at this passage. Father, we ask that you would come now by your Spirit, um, that you would open our eyes and reveal um, your servant, your suffering servant to us. Would you this morning uh, remind us that when you speak, uh, you call things into being that were not. Uh, You... uh, By the very power of your voice, you called everything into being. It was by your son's voice, the power of his voice, that he spoke. And the blind were made to see, the deaf were made to hear, the lame were made to walk, and the dead even came out of their tombs. Father, we pray that you would allow us by your spirit to hear your voice with that kind of power this morning. Would you... Give us sight. Would you open our ears? Would you enable us to walk after you? Would you even raise the dead to life this very morning in Jesus? Um, For we ask all these things in his name. Amen. I've mentioned this before, I think, but when I was a kid, I loved uh, looking at 
optical illusions. Uh, they could be something as simple as the little transparent cube that you can draw on your paper called the Necker cube. And you're looking at it after you draw it and it appears to be facing one direction and then you blink and it appears to be facing the other direction or they could be as complex as some of you have probably seen this, the drawing of the staircases that lead nowhere. You look at it at first and you think, oh, it's a staircase. But then as you look at it, you can't figure out what's, which stairs are ascending, which ones are descending, and they seem to lead nowhere. Those kind of things that play tricks with your mind, you just kind of blink and all of a sudden everything changes. And here's what I'm praying for us that happens this morning as we look together at Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, I'm praying that so metaphorically we, we blink. Um, and this servant who at first glance uh, appears to us despicable even, which is a word used in the passage, um, that he ends up captivating us by the end with his beauty and The reason I say I'm praying that for us is because of what Isaiah wrote at the end of verse 1, which is, you cannot see this servant's beauty unless it's been revealed to you. Unless God opens your eyes, unless God's Spirit pulls back the veil of ordinariness that surrounds this servant, the unattractiveness that surrounds this servant, and reveals His glory to you. Um, and, And listen, it's when... It's when we find ourselves personally captivated by His beauty that we find ourselves being pulled into that beauty. And our lives are changed. And over time, we become more and more like this upside-down servant that I wanted us to talk about this morning. So let me lead you through these three verses like this. First, I want us to talk about the outside-in strategy of the world. In other words, I want us to see in this first point how we normally approach life by trying to define ourselves by our performance and by our achievements. And then second, I want us to talk about the upside down servant of Isaiah 53 and to really think about how this servant came and lived upside down to the world's strategies and the world's values. And then finally, I want us to talk about the inside out and upside down followers of Jesus. How being captivated by the servant's beauty will really radically change everything about our lives. Okay, so first, we're going to talk about the outside-in strategy of the world. Uh, Author David Brooks um, once offered this bit of insight into American culture. He wrote, American civilization encourages us to strive to realize our best self. And what he's talking about there is the idealistic premise that given the right effort, uh, the right discipline, the right support, and so on, you can be anything you want to be. And he goes on, our identity, we often assume, is formed not by where we are born or who our ancestors are. Our identity is instead defined by what we do and accomplish. And Brooks calls this the American meritocracy. Our worth, our value, our identity, it's merited and achieved, right? By what we do or by what we accomplish in this life. And it is the epitome 
of this out, outside-in strategy that I want us to talk about. Um, see, we all long for validation. Everyone in this room, we long for approval. We long to feel and know that we're enough, to know we're acceptable, to know that we're lovable, to know that we're okay. And it's such a part of the fabric of our culture that much of the time we don't even notice it. But we live in a world that says the way you get an identity that allows you to know these things is by working from the outside in. Only if you've done enough, only if you've achieved enough, only if you've accomplished enough, only if you've performed well enough can you be assured that you matter, that you have value, that you're significant, and so on, that you're approved. The outside-in strategy is all about building the right resume. Um, And so it's pretty easy to see how this stuff works itself out in our careers. What's on your professional resume? Um, The truth, I hope, for one. Um, But my guess is that there are probably some things missing from your resume. That you may list your GPA and the degree you got and the positions you've held and the honors you've received and the responsibilities that have been entrusted to you over the years and those kind of things. But what's missing are all your failures. And all those times you, you've lost. And all those times you've been passed over. And all your insecurities and your weakness and your fears, you don't list those kind of things. Why? Because we know how the game works. It's the outside-in strategy, and I prove I'm enough by my performance and by what I've achieved and what I've accomplished and so on. But it's not just in our careers. It happens in our relationships. Personally and relationally, we become masters of spin, right? The appearance of transparency is good, but not too much transparency, We hide our flaws, our shortcomings. We hide our desires from others. We also work really hard in our relationships to get in with the right people. We want to be known to the right people. We want to be seen with the right people. And we call it networking. I know, right? We want to know people of influence and position and power and so on. And the sinister side of our networking is that it's being connected to the right people that's really what makes us feel important ourselves and what makes us feel valuable ourselves and okay. You know, the outside-in strategy shows up everywhere. It shows up certainly in our relationship with our money and our wealth. I think it's why Bob Dylan once famously said, money doesn't talk, it swears. It swears who we are, right? Am I hearing that dinging? Is that coming from I think my phone. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, um, money swears who we are, Dylan says. Um, you know, money's never just money in an outside in working world. The lack of it swears that we're a failure, that we're a disappointment, that we're a victim of some kind of injustice. And the presence of it swears we're a success. That we're important, that we're safe and secure, and on and on we could go. There's this hilarious line in the movie Anchorman uh, that pulls all these things together that I've been talking about. And and it's got to be one of the most quoted lines from this movie. Will Ferrell, who's playing this character, Ron Burgundy, and uh, he's talking to Christina Applegate's character, uh, Veronica Corningstone, and he really wants to oppress her. So he says what? He says... 
I'm kind of a big deal, right? People know me, right? I'm very important. And he says, I have many leather-bound books. And my apartment smells of rich mahogany. Um, and it's funny, and we, and we laugh about it, and we should. It is funny. Because to imagine someone saying that, or, or rather, to imagine someone saying that out loud, right? Good comedy is always based in reality. And, and we know that the only reason anyone would ever say, I'm kind of a big deal, and, and so on, is because deep down, he's afraid he isn't. And he's got to prove it by what he has and who he's connected to and, and all those things. It, it, that's how we do it as well. Look at my gifts. Look at my strengths. Look at my achievements and so on. We do the math. And we calculate our worth from the outside in. Now Isaiah 53. In verse 3 of Isaiah 53, I, Isaiah used a very interesting Hebrew word. At the very end of that verse, Isaiah told us that this servant was despised and we esteemed him not. And that Hebrew word for esteemed is an accounting word. And here's what Isaiah was saying. When the world saw this servant, it did the math. It did the calculations. And he had none of its markers of worth value or importance. Verse 2, he had no form or majesty, no beauty that we should desire him. He had no connections. He had no power, no position, no wealth. In the eyes of the world, with eyes that look from the outside in, they did the math and he was a nothing. He was a nobody is what Isaiah was saying. The world looked, took, took one look at him and looked at his resume and they laughed him off as a joke. And we would have too. He was, verse 3, one from whom men hide their faces. Let me, let me just... You wouldn't have wanted to be seen with him. You wouldn't have invited him to your tailgate or to your Christmas party or, or, or whatever. You, you drop people's names sometimes. But you would have never wanted to drop his name, is what Isaiah was saying. They esteemed him not. So let me leave you at this point with just two simple questions. First, do you see it? That is, do you see and recognize this outside-in strategy that's around us all the time, that is a, a fabric of our worlds? This outside-in pursuit of an identity. And then second, I just want to know, can you admit how exhausting it is? How it's wearing us out. How incapable we are in this outside-in strategy to find rest and to find freedom. The kind of rest and freedom we all long for in this life. Alright, second, we're moving forward. Isaiah anticipated the servant who was going to come and who was going to shatter the expectations of this outside-in uh, looking world. And so second, we're going to talk about this upside down strat the upside-down strategy of this servant. Isaiah called this servant the arm of the Lord in verse 1. Now, that's a loaded phrase for Isaiah. Um, if you were reading through Isaiah, 
you would have come across that phrase, the arm of the Lord, a number of times. And in fact, Isaiah has been ramping up anticipation for the the arrival of the arm of the Lord. So just real briefly, listen. In chapter 51, verse 19, Isaiah tells us that the arm of the Lord was called to awake. In 52, verse 6, the arm of the Lord pledged God's own presence. In 52.8, the arm of the Lord foresaw God Himself coming to to Zion. In 52 uh, verse 10, the arm of the Lord has been bared in incredible, powerful, saving action. And the anticipation for this arm of the Lord, it's been building in other words. And you're thinking, wow, when the arm of the Lord finally comes, it's going to be so impressive. But then Isaiah says, here's the arm of the Lord. In verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 53. And he isn't impressive at all. He's a nobody. He's a nothing. When this servant came, he came upside down everyone's expectations. There's a story in Mark chapter 6 that I think really highlights well this upside down servant. In Mark 6, Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth. And Nazareth, if you don't know, was a very small town, very small city. At at most, probably 500 people were living in Nazareth. Uh, In other words, it was a town where everybody knew everybody else. Nothing big ever really happened in Nazareth. And Jesus lived there for about 25 years of his life. And now the hometown kid is teaching and people are following and he's doing these amazing miracles. You know what it's like when you go to an LSU football game or baseball or basketball game or something like that and the announcer announces some kid that grew up in Baton Rouge and the applause gets loud and everybody's excited because we're proud of that. We think he's one of us. We know him. He's a local guy, hometown hero. He or she, right? We're proud of that. But that's not what happened for Jesus in his hometown. Here's what happened in Jesus' hometown in Mark 6, verses 2 and 3. They said this, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? And then they said this, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Here's what they're saying. Yeah, we know him, and he's not a big deal. He's a nobody. He's just a carpenter's son, right? Just an ordinary carpenter. And then they said, isn't this Mary's son? That's really odd in a patriarchal society where everyone was normally identified with their father. Because this is what they're really saying. We don't even know who his dad is. I mean, saying, we did the math. I remember when Joseph and Mary got married, and then they had a brand new baby boy seven months later. They're saying he's an illegitimate child, a no one. Scholar William Lane wrote about these verses. In spite of what they heard and saw, they failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness which characterized the one who had grown up in the village saying they couldn't see it. He was that upside down to everybody's expectations 
They couldn't see it. And we think, wow, why didn't Jesus just set them straight? We only think that because we don't realize how absolutely committed he was to being an upside down servant. Because not only did he not set them straight, but you might remember this from reading through some of the gospels. He did all these amazing miracles and people started to get impressed. And what did Jesus do when that happened? He said, shh, shh, don't tell anybody. Right? He healed lepers. He, he silenced demons. He wouldn't explain his parables in public. He raised the dead and he kept on saying, see that you do not tell anyone. Why the secrecy, Jesus? It's because Jesus knew that no one would understand his upside-down strategy. He knew that given half a chance, we wanted to define what kind of king, what kind of Messiah, what kind of servant he should be. This happened to me the other day uh, when I went over to my parents' house for Thanksgiving. On my way over, I noticed that it had been a few weeks since I've been there. And I noticed this construction company had come in and they had cleared this big section of of ground, all all the trees out and that kind of thing. They put up a fence and there were obviously, the ground was being leveled and all of that. They were obviously getting ready to build something big. And it was just a passing thought as I I drove by down the road. But I I thought, I wonder what they're building there. New apartments, restaurants, some kind of office complex. What's going to go in that lot. Um, And I've lived in a number of small towns in Mississippi especially. um, And whenever this kind of thing happened, when somebody was obvious, somebody was building something, it's everything, you know, everybody wanted to talk about in town. I wonder what they're building here. Did you see what they're doing on such and such a road? I wonder what it's gonna be. And and people were guessing, it's gonna be this kind of restaurant, it's gonna be this kind of store, it's maybe a gas station, maybe a new business, whatever. And if you listen really closely, well, you don't have to listen even that closely, people are saying, this is what I hope it will be, right? This is what I want it to be. It would be great if it was such and such. And then they come in and they, Build a Taco Bell or Crystal and everybody's sad. Um, but listen, I hope nobody owns a Taco Bell franchise in here. But listen, Jesus was up against, he was up against the outside-in strategy of the world and the world was looking for a Messiah. He was looking for a king that fit their understanding of what he should be. He should be impressive, he should be majestic, he should be powerful, he should be attractive. Someone we would want to follow. For the Jews, it was a militaristic king who would come in and crush the Roman oppressors. A king who would come in and fix the circumstances of our lives. A king who would fit my desires, never contradict me, make my life better, more comfortable, make me feel good about myself, make my troubles go away. And Jesus was saying, shh, don't tell anyone. He wouldn't let anyone define what, define what kind of king he was because he was committed to this upside-down strategy. And, and let's just think just for a moment how upside-down his strategy really was. He was a king who was born in obscurity. I mean, not only was he born in a feed trough in a manger, but he, his whole life he was poor. Do you remember that time when someone asked him about paying taxes to Caesar? And he took an image of a coin, but he didn't have an image of a coin. He had to ask somebody for a coin so he could see the image of Caesar on it. 
He was homeless. He said, foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was acquainted with grief, as Isaiah says. His life was a life of tears and sorrow. He was lonely. He was despised and rejected. What a strange hero. King, Messiah, servant come to deliver God's people. And where did this upside down strategy for his life lead him? He wasn't building a resume anything like we're building our resumes. One that tells how great and wonderful and how successful we are. His upside down strategy led to a cross where he would be broken and crushed, where he would become a victim of injustice, where he would lose and be defeated and die completely and utterly alone. This was his strategy. In every way, he was and is the upside-down servant. Okay, and this finally brings us to our last point. Because I want us to talk about what this means for us. What it could mean for us today. Uh, People who follow Jesus. So I want to talk about the inside-out and upside-down follow strategy of Jesus followers. So let's start here. I asked you in the beginning if you could blink. And if this person who at first appears despicable might become beautiful to you. Now I'm cheating a bit, but the next stanza of this song that we're looking at tells us this. That the suffering servant would come into the world to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows That he would come to be wounded for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities, and on him would be laid the iniquity of us all. In other words, this upside down servant will only become beautiful when you can see that everything he did, he did for you. He was born in obscurity. Poor and homeless, was lonely and despised, broken and crushed. All for you. He came to be a different kind of king. A king who was going to reign through defeat and win through losing. And become a victor by being a victim of injustice. I mean, think about it. All of this, he did for you. Because he loves you that much. So think with me just for a moment, and I'm going to try to pull all this together for us. In the outside-in world, we lead with our abilities and our strengths and our achievements. In the outside world, those are your assets. But guess what? To an upside-down servant who came to do everything for you, all your abilities, all your strengths, all your achievements, they aren't assets. They're liabilities. How so? Because they keep you. They keep you from coming to Jesus with nothing but your need. In Jesus' kingdom, building your resume is simply amassing your liabilities. Now listen, I want to be sensitive here. There are plenty of us here this morning who feel such shame and regret and disappointment in our lives. But I want you to hear me clearly. Even from that place, a place not of pride, right, but of deep insecurity, the outside-in strategy still raises its head in our lives. And we begin to think, 
I need to clean myself up. I need to fix this or that in my life. I need to do better. I need to be better before I come to Jesus. And the Bible is telling you that's the one thing you must not do. You simply need to come. And you need to come with nothing but your need to this beautiful upside down servant who gave his life for you. And when you do, it it will turn you into his inside out and upside down followers. See, here's what the gospel says to you. You can finally get out of the weary, exhausting rat race of trying to prove your worth and your value and your significance by what you do and how well you perform. The gospel says to you, come and rest in Jesus and live off of his resume for you. In him, you're enough, period. There's nothing you could ever do to be more accepted, more approved, more valued than you already are in Him. It's the gospel that gives you real freedom to rest in this life. And and it's this truth and beauty that will begin to heal your life from the inside out so that you can finally begin to live out of your identity in Jesus and stop living to get an identity because you already have it in Him. This truth and beauty, it'll also begin to turn you upside down. This beauty, his beauty, begins to change what you truly see as beautiful in this life. And it begins to bleed into every area of your life. Earlier we talked about how the outside-in strategy of the world, how it plays itself out in our careers and in our relationships and with our wealth. But what begins to happen when you no longer need your career or relationships, or your wealth to give you your identity, it begins to change the questions altogether and turn you upside down. See, in Jesus, you're free to ask now about your vocation. How can I use the gifts, the talents, the skills that God has given me to serve, not myself, but to serve the unattractive and unmajestic and formless people and places of this world? In Jesus, you're free to ask questions about your relationships. If I'm free from needing to be connected with the right people so that I can feel like someone, what does it look for me to embrace that freedom and be connected relationally to people I know are going to cost me? Emotionally, socially, financially, all kinds of other ways. In Jesus, we're free to ask different questions about our wealth. If my wealth is no longer the measure of my security, my value, my worth, my significance, my safety in this life, then how can I use it to bring healing to the brokenness of this world? How can I embrace the freedom to live out radical, selfless generosity towards those around me? It changes the questions when you're set free from all of those things. Let me end by sharing with you a story of one of Jesus' inside-out and upside-down followers um, that will help make some of this more concrete in story form. Um, there's a priest, his name is Father Damien, and he became famous for his willingness to give his life to serve and help lepers. Uh, he moved to a village in Hawaii that had been quarantined as a leper colony, and he moved there to help them. And I just want you to listen to this summary of his story. For 16 years, he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. 
He bandaged their wounds, embraced the bodies no one else would touch, preached to hearts that otherwise would have been left alone. He organized schools and bands and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Slowly it was said that this village became a place to live rather than a place to die. For Father Damien had offered hope. Father Damien was not careful though about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his finger in the bowl along with the patients when they ate. He shared his pipe. He did not always wash his hands after bandaging open sores. He got close. And for this, the people loved him. And then one day, he stood up and began his sermon with these two words. We lepers. Because now, he wasn't just helping them. Now he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin. For he had chosen to live as they had lived. And now he would die as they died. And now they were in it together. And that's a life of inside out and upside down beauty. How do you get changed to live a life of beauty like that? And surely it's going to take some dreaming, right? It's going to look differently for us here in Baton Rouge with our careers and our relationships and our resources. But how do you even start moving in that direction? You do it by seeing this beauty. That one day God came to earth and began His message this way. We lepers. Because now He wasn't just helping us. Now He was one of us. Now He was in our skin. He came completely upside down. He came in our skin to take our leprosy and to take our sin to the cross. And there He won by losing. He was victorious through His defeat. And I'm asking you if you can blink and see that. See the beauty of this upside down servant. And it will begin changing you from the inside out and turn you in and turn you in upside down. Now listen, in just a few moments, we're going to come to this table in front of this pulpit, the Lord's Supper. And it's not a table for everyone. It's a table for the followers of Jesus. And here's what that means. If you're a believer, and you're a member in good standing of a gospel-proclaiming church, you are a follower of Jesus. And you are invited to come to this table to feast with and upon the upside-down servant who gave his life for you. You are invited to come and in simple reminders, bread that represents his body and wine that represents his blood, be reminded of his beauty and all that he has already accomplished for you. You're invited to come and be nourished in Jesus so that more and more we might grow together into the inside out and upside down followers of Jesus that he calls us to be. Let's pray together.